Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's August 7th, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by Chris Deaton and Jim Swift of the Weekly Standard. Thanks for, for joining me. Uh, right before we started this, I, I, I mentioned that uh, that I was I was a little bit obsessed uh, following the Manafort trial uh, for no other reason than just to watch the various layers of sleaze that are being laid out here. I, you know, I'm, tr- I'm trying to imagine any picture of the swamp in which somebody like Paul Manafort would not be the ultimate swamp creature. I'm just hoping that the jury is able to keep track of uh, of all of the multiple layers of shell companies and various factions of Ukrainian politics, but it it is really extraordinary, you, the cast you, of characters. I used here. to go to church with him, Charlie, but I must say that he, he never uh, wore the ostrich jacket to mass. <laughs> Really? Yeah. No, I wouldn't think you'd get the ostrich jacket for for mass, but it, but I'm guessing it was impressive anyway. Yes, I never saw Every, him, though. At least everybody in this trial is described as being extremely well dressed. There's no question about it. <laughs> All right. So I, the it is it is election day again because apparently every day is election day in 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 America. But uh, the Ohio t- twelve uh, special election um, is going to get a lot of attention. For the usual reasons, this is a district that Donald Trump won by 11 points. Um, it is overwhelmingly Republican. It is overwhelmingly conservative. And the conventional wisdom is suggesting, though, that this race is, uh, has tightened up. Uh, and it's tightened up, uh, again, for the usual reasons that the Democrats appear uh, much more motivated. This district also, it's kind of an interesting district because it includes the suburbs around Columbus, but also a, a good section of rural Ohio. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen, but you know the fact that that it's even competitive is clearly a warning sign for for Republicans. But what's interesting uh, to me is the way that in these final days of the campaign, the Republican who is essentially kind of a generic Republican, kind of a, just a usual sort of, you know, no, nothing particularly MAGA about him. He's gone full Trump, um, and um, it, it really has the feel of, of a sort of, you know, uh, you know last, uh, last days of a, of a general election campaign where you're just throwing all of the, the, all of the invective you possibly can at uh, at the Democrats. So I wanted to talk about this in the context of, uh, Chris, your piece that you had in the Weekly Standard uh, the other day, where you point out that the the dilemma for Republicans is how close they tie themselves to Donald Trump, although you put it rather more colorfully than I just did. <laughs> well, I, I think bear hugging is, is probably one generic term that can be used. But, you know, Charlie, I mean, this is like we talked about off air for a few minutes. This is an ongoing topic. It's not like there's anything particularly new here. But what gives it fresh legs is the more that you hear national media begin to talk about it. I mean, it was a major topic uh, with Mike Murphy, the Republican uh, guru, and Chuck Todd on Meet the Press on Sunday. Mm-hmm. You take note of all of these different races where it happens in the country. Yes, Ohio 12 is one of them. And you bring up, Charlie, that, you know, this Troy Balderson is a generic Republican, to use your terminology. I think 538 mm-hmm. described him as a 50-something veteran of state politics. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, how much more generic can you possibly get than that? And all of a sudden you go full Trump. I think the big thing to keep in mind here with respect to a lot of this stuff is that the more you see the president jump into primary contests like this, which... 
so far as I know, is kind of a unique phenomenon in recent American politics. I may be in certain circumstances when you have one preferred candidate, you want to push across the finish line. But the president has done this into the double figures now. The more that candidates see this and get the sense that maybe I need to tie myself to this guy somehow, the more they're going to want to appeal to him because they know Trump has a chance of weighing in. So you see it happen beyond congressional races like Ohio 12. You see it happen down where I live in the Georgia governor's race with Mm -hmm. Brian Kemp, who is the guy who said he'll round up criminal illegals in his truck and drive them across the border himself if he has to, going full Trump. He ends up getting the president's endorsement. You see it happen in the Florida governor's race. So this happens a lot around the country just beyond congressional races, which I think is part of the interesting phenomenon. But, you know, if if you build the ad, Trump will come. To use uh, some, <laughs> some some field of dreams uh, terminology and, there, and when he jumps in, he'll uh, he'll tweet out the uh, wrong candidate's name. Uh, get out and vote for Steve Stivers. Oh wait, he's not on the right. ballot. Well, I mean, we, to show he really demo- cares. This has been demonstrated to work very effectively in the primaries. There's no question about it. Now I think we'll find out how effective it is in the general election. I mean, that's a whole that is a, that is a whole different dynamic, and you know, in in Ohio. Um, you have a lot of uh, Republicans who uh, may have even voted for uh, Donald Trump, who appear to be uh, relatively unmotivated to turn out in a in a in a special election in right. a lock year. Why right. put that yoke exactly. around your neck if you don't have to? Mm-hmm. Sure, I mean, I I think that's right on, Jim. I mean, and that's that's kind of some of the that's kind of some of the logic that you have to game out if you're a, a political strategist when it comes to this. I mean, I think the the simplest way to think about it is if I am in the reddest of red districts or the reddest of red states, then yeah, sure, maybe I can get away with this because I have an inherent numbers advantage based on registered voters inside the state or likely voters inside the state. Uh, If there are going to be, you know, if the state's 60 percent Republican or the district 60 percent Republican and it's only 40 percent Democrat, then tying yourself to Trump really doesn't have that much baggage to it just because he remains popular inside of the party. It's in these more 50-50 districts that you have to watch out for come November. Well, you know, I was when I when I was reading your piece, I was thinking about what's been happening here in my home state of Wisconsin. And we're very much a 50-50 state. Um, There's uh, a very, very heated uh, Republican Senate primary between Leah Vukmir, who is again a you know long long term veteran Republican legislator and a newcomer um, uh, named Nicholson, and uh, they are vying with one another in who is the most loyal, who is going to fawn more on on Donald Trump, which is extraordinary because I know both these individuals, and I think without giving anything away, it's pretty clear that they were they were uh, highly Trump skeptical during 2016. In fact. The race was sort of roiled last week when a video came out of Leah Vukmir being on my now defunct radio show, um, you know, ripping Donald Trump, saying he was offensive to every single group. And then, you know, rather ostentatiously holding her nose and saying that uh, basically the only way that Republicans like her would vote for him was was to hold uh, hold hold their nose. And this, of course, has now been weaponized in this race. But even more extraordinarily than that. This is a state where the Trump tariffs are are really damaging the economy, um, ought to be un, uh, unpopular, uh, given the impact on soybean farmers, on Harley Davidson. But again, both Vukmir and Nicholson, so reluctant to have any daylight between themselves and Donald Trump, are uh, sound like they're 100 percent backing the tariffs. So this extends not just to the personality, to building the wall, but a reluctance even to... Uh, break with uh, break with the the president 
when I think they would have some running room. I mean, even Paul Ryan from Wisconsin has made it clear he is not endorsing these tariffs. But when it comes to these candidates for Senate, they're all with Trump. You know, Charlie, uh, the flip flopping of these candidates who, you know, expressed what I would assume are their their true beliefs pre, uh, you know, October of 2016 aside. And now it, it's, it's disconcerting, I think, that you use the term weaponized and it certainly has been. They are weaponizing reasonable statements and making people who, uh, well, maybe no longer adhere to them out to be unreasonable for having a reasonable position. It's like you guys are the crazy ones for thinking Trump is, you know, offensive and uh, divisive. But, you know, now you're the bad guy for once having held that view. I mean, you might be the bad guy for not holding that view anymore in my in my book. But, um, you know, it's just it's the up is down, down is up. Yeah, well, obviously, uh, this time tomorrow, there's going to be all sorts of punditry about what happened in Ohio. I I, uh, I saw that David Axelrod tweeted out this morning that if the Democrat, uh, was it Danny O'Connor? Yeah. If Danny O'Connor, you know, e- ekes out a victory, which is seems seems extremely unlikely, you know, given the nature of this district, that it would be a political earthquake. Um, and that, of course, that's the way it would be portrayed. But even if the Republicans hold on to the seat unless it's a blowout. Um, it's there's there's not a lot of good news there. This was the Republican Party, the Ohio Republican Party, stepping on a rake and wonder and wondering why they're getting <laughs> jacked in the face. <laughs> Pat T. Berry, who, who whom I like and respect uh, very much, being in Ohio, and I when I worked in Congress, I, I worked for a member of the Ways and Means Committee, and he's a very smart and thoughtful guy. And you know, he was thinking about running for Senate and uh, whether or not he was going to run for governor and all these other sorts of things. And then he said, Ah, screw it, I'm going to become the president of the Ohio Business Roundtable. We didn't have to have this election today. And if we just had it in November, I, I don't think we'd be as worried about this. But now after Connor Lamb, um, the Democrats are trying to make everything into an earthquake election. And, um, you know, who knows if they if they succeed? I mean, it creates that narrative. But we didn't have to have an election today. We just chose to. And it was stupid. Yeah, yeah I- Charlie, just to jump in really quick here, because I think you made a really great point about the Republicans not necessarily having to lose for this to be bad news for the party. I think that is the recurring theme of what has been going on this year as far back as the Georgia 6th. If you remember Karen Handel running against, you know, the new hotness back then, the (laughs) 30-something John Ossoff, who was a fairly generic Democratic candidate in himself. He just happened to be a young person lost by five or six points, but it was in Tom Price's old district. And this is a district where, yeah, maybe the Republicans should do a little better than that. You saw that in Montana. You saw that in a South Carolina special, uh, a South Carolina election that I think was a special earlier this year um, to replace Mick Mulvaney. You, when you have this repeat trend of Republicans only winning seats, they should win by 10 or 12 by only four or five. The earthquake may come in November. It doesn't have to happen today because you have hundreds of races down the road that are going to be happening here in a couple of months. Well, especially since the Republicans apparently have uh, have put in about five times as much money as the Democrats. But we'll 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 have plenty of time tomorrow to engage in this sort of uh, spin. Okay, um, I want to run an argument by you that um, that apparently in a moment of weakness I made to a reporter for the New York Times, which. And I'm, and I'm I'm willing to acknowledge that I may be completely full of it on this. Okay, this was one of my my rare rare moments of optimism. Um, it's uh, this is in the profile that's going to appear. Mark Leibovich's uh, profile of Paul Ryan that will appear in the Sunday New York Times magazine, and and he makes the case: a Republican leader so unwilling to condemn Trump because their voters support him so vigorously 
Or do these voters support Trump so vigorously because so few Republican leaders have dared condemn his actions? Chicken, meat, egg. And then he quotes me. I would say the unwillingness of Ryan and others to offer an alternative vision to Trump would be the reason that Trump's approval ratings uh, numbers are so high, Sykes told me. When your best and brightest basically run up the white flag, it's going to have an effect. Now, I'm willing to acknowledge that I may be completely wrong there because all of the evidence suggests that if Paul Ryan would have you know, stood his ground that it probably wouldn't have made any difference whatsoever, that he would have simply been roadkill. I guess my point is that in an alternative reality in which you did have more prominent elected Republicans um, making making the case, at least there would be this alternative to the narrative that 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 if you are a conservative, you must support Trump, that Trumpism is conservative. So take a whack at this, Chris, would it have made any difference? And we're saying this, of course, on the Weekly Standard podcast, where, you know, the Weekly Standard and many, many thought leaders from Charles Krauthammer and George Will, you know, did take this position and made no difference whatsoever in in Republicans rallying around Donald Trump. So would it have made any difference, do you think, Chris? Yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and try to be brief here, because I, I know that Jim's probably got some thoughts on this himself, <laughs> and, they, and, and they may be connected, given the fact that Jim and I both uh, were on Capitol Hill serving a couple of different members around the same time. And I remember back then thinking about what the Tea Party was and how is the Republican Party going to evolve? And is this actually a policy protest against President mm-hmm. Obama or is it truly this attitudinal thing where, you know what, it's just screw it. We can't stand any of these people. We want to turn the entire thing on its head. And right now, the Tea Party happens to be the convenient move- movement right now that we can tie ourselves to given the economic crisis. I don't think the Tea Party, Charlie, evolved into Trumpism, but I do think that Republican voters who were kind of out in the wilderness trying to find something to attach themselves to that was more attitudinal than policy-based came in the form of Trump. So if you would have had lots of members of Congress out there saying, whoa, 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 the president's attitude is going way too far here. This is not how we should comport ourselves. This is not dignified. I'm not entirely sure that you have a critical mass of Republican voters who agree. I really don't. I really do think that so much of the culture wars have subsumed um, the way that American life conducts itself, politics bleeding into everything, that there are a lot of Republican voters who really do want this. Maybe you can move some things to the margins, and if you have 150 Republicans stand up and many of them, such yeah. as Speaker Ryan, are prominent ones, maybe that changes things. But I think there's an underlying current here. You know, you're, you're, you're touching on something that I think is important here. Like the, the three of us, I think, were under the impression that politics was about ideas, was about policies, um, you, know, um, um, you know, again, this sort of substance. But in fact, what I think we've learned is the point you're making, Chris, is that for a lot of the you know, conservative voters, politics was more about attitude. It was more about identity. And when it really came down to it, the specific issues just simply didn't didn't have the traction to go up against that attitude. What do you think, Jim? Yeah, I I I, I am. I'm still pretty young, but as someone who kind of grew up not in politics like you did, Charlie, but grew up aspiring to work in politics and did, I I was always a big fan of ideas and reading the Weekly Standard and National Review. And, um, you know, this was before the right-wing blogosphere really took up. And I, I, I think politics is a lot more tribal than I probably thought. And maybe I was naive in that because, you know, 
the Tea Party example that Chris points to, um, I, I think it reminds me of that meme where the guy is holding hands with his girlfriend and then, you know, whistling and checking out another one. <laughs> his girlfriend yeah. is Trump or his girlfriend is Tea Party and the other girl is Trump. And a lot of those people just, uh, you know, the, the second frame of the meme would be that, you know, now they they left the Tea Party for, for the other girl because look at look at the deficit. And you brought this up in the New York Times uh, piece mm-hmm. on Ryan about a Faustian bargain being uh, having higher costs than you would like. You know, if it was a president Marco Rubio and we'd gotten the tax cuts and all the same things and we didn't have to fight these, uh, you know, daily Twitter culture wars over whatever the president's thinking about. If Paul Ryan was still retiring and it was this president Rubio or something and the deficit was going the way it was, I still think people would still be critical of Paul Ryan, you know, who is a very deficit hawkish guy and has been, um, you know, is this not really being the greatest legacy for him? I do think there is an absence um, that you kind of point out of of a leader, uh, of, of a, not, not necessarily a never Trump leader. And, you know, that is sort of poisoned. Uh, mm-hmm. Things anyone who's critical uh, of, of Trump is now listed as being never Trump. I mean, I think Ben Sass is kind of out there, but he he kind of jumps back and forth on these sorts of things. And I do think that there are, I think there's an overlap of people who find the president's uh, behavior, actions, leadership style, um, his a bit in, a bit inability to pick really good people for jobs, uh, disgusting and wrong and bad. Those people tend to also be the idea people that the Tea Party folks would point out and be like, "Oh, they said something really smart, right?" And uh, now, um, you know, they're the kind of people who, like George Will, they're like, "That guy is a cuck." You know, what a sellout! I mean, he should, you know, he should just change <laughs> oh, parties. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, it is a wilderness, I think, for I- ideas bound. You know, the idea type conservatives, and the question well, is, know, how long it's going to be. And, and and I think the proof that 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 my my speculation is wrong. Um, it's something I actually deal with in the introduction of my paperback, uh, of the paperback edition, which is coming out uh, in, a, in, in a couple of months. And, then, and it goes back to that moment when the Access Hollywood video was released. Remember, October 7th, uh, 2016. That was really a pivotal day. And remember what Paul Ryan did. Um, he disinvited Donald Trump from coming to Wisconsin for that the first joint rally that they were going to have together. And then the next week, he had that conference call with the House Republicans where he said, I'm basically done with Trump. I'm not going to defend him anymore. And we know what happened. I mean, that that, that was, the, you know, at the time, I thought this was going to be a turning point. And it was a turning point, but just not the one we thought, right? I mean, because um, all these Republicans distanced themselves, but one by one, they came back, one by one. They made their peace, and still, what it was, 90% of Republicans ended up voting for Trump. Okay, let's uh, switch gears here. Here's an interesting dilemma. Facebook and Twitter um, have essentially banned Alex Jones. Alex Jones, the purveyor of uh, of obscene, deranged, unhinged conspiracy theories. Um, and this has set off a debate about uh, free speech, the First Amendment, whether this is the right thing to do. So let me throw this to you, uh, Jim Swift. Uh, We are all here big free speech advocates. We do not want speech police. But on the other hand, the First Amendment does not apply to private companies, and Twitter and Facebook are private companies. So did did those companies do the right thing by deep-sixing InfoWars Alex Jones? Thanks for having me, Charlie. There's war on for your mind here in uh, Dallas, Texas, drinking sodium fluoridated water. Uh, sorry, I, I had to break out the uh, the Alex Jones impression. It's one of my few good ones. Um, I think they did the right thing for the wrong reasons. 
Um, at the time to kick Alex Jones off the platform was Sandy Hook. You know, you can't say, oh, years and years later, you know, this guy, just because there's a lawsuit going on, um, there is there is groupthink in, in how the big... Well, let's, let, let's not assume that everybody knows about this. I, I'm guessing yeah. that 99% of our listeners know, but here is a guy who believed that after, who, you know, after Sandy Hook, after all of those children were massacred, and in, in, um, I, I would argue one of just the most horrendous of the mass shooting cases. They're all horrendous, but that one was particularly because they were they were young, defenseless children. He went on, you know, over and over and over again, saying that the thing had been made up, that they were actors, that the that the parents were 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 pretending, were in on some sort of a massive con. I mean, it was not just a conspiracy theory; it was one of the ugliest. Even even in the in the pantheon of ugly conspiracy theories that come out of Alex Jones's mouth. Yeah, and if if something I don't want to imagine a hypothetical event were to happen in the future, and some sort of guy like him were to have a big uh, big network and and to make similar comments, they should, of course should be kicked off. On the right, there is this concern, and I want to quote Alex Griswold here, who's a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon, who made a really good point. There is a, there is a concern on the right. Uh, about, oh, first, you know, Ted Cruz is, first they came for InfoWars. Um, and so the, the tweet is, first they came for InfoWars, and I didn't say anything because I didn't like InfoWars. And, you know, that's sort of like take, taking the old phrase, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, for the Holocaust. First they came, you know, for the Jews, but I didn't care because I wasn't Jewish. And they're they're making Alex Jones into this martyr. And that's the problem with some people going too far right. But what Alex Griswold says is, then they never came for me because I never accused grieving parents of murdered children of being crisis actors. I'm not sure that Alex Jones uh, is is a reasonable place to plant your flag on the, you know, um, the censorship stuff. Uh, another point he made was, you know, it's actually more unreasonable that U.S. senators are harassing a private company about diamond and silks feelings. Um, you know, when there's no proof that they're they're getting their page views knocked down or all these other sorts of things. So no, well, I I think it was a reasonable decision, and I I'm really sad as I am most days about when I look at the Republican Party about how people, you know, ten years ago some people were like mad that mainstream left people were saying Alex Jones is part of the new right. Guess what? The left was right. Alex Jones has become a big part of the new right, unfortunately, and you know now people are uh, aligning themselves with him. I thought David French had a very um, thoughtful and nuanced piece in the New York Times where where he he made it very, very clear he didn't object to the banning of Alex Jones. What he was concerned about was the justification that was used that Alex Jones was engaging in hate speech. Yes. And and pointing out the danger of not being specific or, or using these vague terms because I think a lot of conservatives are right to be very, very skeptical of speech police who use terms like, you know, incite, you know, again, who knows what the definition of hate speech can be? I mean, being in favor of the flat tax could someday be construed as hate speech. So, Chris, your take on on all of this, uh, Facebook and Twitter, have they have they stepped up? Are they doing the responsible thing? Are they being censors? And why the hell is Ted Cruz getting involved in this in the first place? Yeah, I'll give, sure. you, I'll give you three questions there. Sure, sure. I, I will. I will try to begin at thirty thousand feet and narrow down to something a little more microscopic. Um, I think, and Jim and I have talked about this plenty. I think that the uh, American public have a serious problem with language, and I think it applies everywhere. I think it applies when people throw their hands up and say Barack Obama is a socialist. It stuff is nonsense. Yeah, I mean, it 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 infuriates me. It drives me insane. He's a liberal. He's not a socialist. He is a person who supported a surtax on billionaires, 
He's a person who supported a healthcare system that was this odd, mixed market, government interventionist mishmash of a mess, but not something that was going to completely overhaul the entire healthcare system and actually put it in the hands of Washington, D.C. And when you have this on the right going toward the left, and when you have this from the left going toward the right with people calling Mitt Romney a misogynist or people calling George W. Bush a war criminal, I think that we have enabled this environment during this century where words just stop meaning things. And that's where I want to try to tie that to the current situation going on with what David French has to say about these platforms banning of info wars. Using the term hate speech in the hands of anybody nowadays, we can't define anything, Charlie, at this point. There are people who are going to say that Ben Shapiro is guilty of hate speech. Oh, absolutely. I can easily see that. And use that term the same way as being applied to InfoWars. Now, of course, InfoWars is repugnant. I, I mean, it is just, it's awful. And what these platforms have done in terms of their ends, yeah, kicking them off of Facebook, kicking them off of Yahoo, they are Yahoo's. I mean, whatever. They're under no obligation themselves to host these platforms. I mean, these guys are still on the internet and can be found elsewhere. Uh, Facebook, Yahoo, Twitter, these, I know, I know Twitter hasn't done anything just yet as far as I know, but I know that these platforms are not government owned. And of course we can go round and round with that discussion. I mean, of course they have the right to do this, but I do understand the means argument. And what I wanted to ask Facebook about today, and I'm waiting to hear back from them, is if they have any sort of bright line test or Potter Stewart like test where the thrust is I know the content when I see it, like like you guys are talking about here. Look, accusing, you know, Sandy Hook people of being crisis actors. I mean, my God, I, this is this is so off the, the, the rocker of being insane that why would you even put up with a person of this particular worldview? Facebook specifies that there is a certain quantity or threshold of strikes against certain parts of their policy that can get you kicked off the platform. They don't disclose what those strikes are, and they don't exactly say what constitutes them specifically. They do have guidelines, but I can see how people would want to have that worry. But to your point, Charlie, and, and especially your point, Jim, this being the hill to die on, it's Alex Jones, for goodness sakes. I mean, what are we talking about here? We're not talking about a Republican senator. We're not even talking about somebody who is at the forefront of an actual somewhat mainstream recognized political movement that is completely unlike conspiracy theory, you know, wackadoodle mode orbiting Pluto somewhere. <laughs> Here, here's We're not talking about ideas, are we? No. Right. Here, right. Here's the devil's advocate question about the okay. transparency, because I'm with you guys on the transparency, but I'm just trying to put on my, my contrarian hat, which I love. I wear I wear to the office every day. You see on Twitter when people get put in Twitter jail or in some cases banned. Twitter didn't used to necessarily ban people. That is more of a recent practice in the past like five years or so. And uh, there are these coordinated campaigns that um, motivated Twitter mobs will use to try and deplatform folks. You know, everyone was talking yesterday about Alex Jones being deplatformed as a new thing. Mm -hmm. It's not new. If we have clear rules of the road, and they're clearly vague rules of the road about hate speech and, you know, other sorts of things, because hate speech varies in definition from person to person, unless they don't believe in the concept and just want to stick to libel and slander. Would we then be in a world where 
Twitter mobs or Facebook mobs could start going into crewing strikes and saying, hey, look, I found 14 instances of hate speech. Time to act, Facebook. Um, you know, that it's, it's maybe a be careful what you wish for thing if they, if they don't do it right, which who knows, they probably won't. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, I really think they ought to be as transparent as possible. On the other hand, maybe what they're saying here is they you mentioned the Potter Stewart rule, which is basically that you, you may not be able to come up with, you know, hard and fast standards. But when you see it, you know that that it's got to go. I also think that there's a moment and I, I mentioned, you know, Ted Cruz has decided that he's going to get involved in this. And, you know, like I respect people who are fighting for for free speech. But, you know, Cruz, who has. You know, I, I the the only theory that I have here is 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 basically that uh, uh, there's some folks who who like the the victimization narrative that uh, conservatives are being victimized. And, you know, but but don't make it about Alex Jones, because the original sin here and, and this is something for and that you, you sort of touched on it, Jim, when, when you talked about how, you know, we used to resent, you know, having people say that Alex Jones was was part of the of the right. And then suddenly he starts being linked on Drudge and he starts being linked by other conservative websites. And Donald Trump goes on his show and Donald Trump praises him. You know, the the with all of the focus on Facebook, Facebook played a role. But so did a lot of other people who should have been much more responsible. This is a real blot on the the on the right. It, the, the fact that that rather than keeping Alex Jones consigned to the far reaches of the fever swamp that they made him, they, 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 to a certain extent, mainstreamed him. And, you know, I, I, I tried to figure out, I spent a lot of time trying to identify the, the first time that, that Matt Drudge linked to him on the front page of, of the Drudge report, because that was a real turning point because once that started happening, that sort of thing was injected into the bloodstream. And you wonder, we talked about QAnon the other day, you know, once once you start injecting that sort of stuff into the bloodstream, should you really be surprised at at the degree of crazy that you eventually come out with? No, not at all. And yeah. and there there is this mainstreaming. And I, I get a lot of criticism for my daily newsletter, which if you haven't signed up for it, go to weeklystandard.com and click on newsletters and uh, sign up. But I'm I'm very critical of, of of a lot of folks on the right um, for acting poorly, and people say, "Why do you have to be so mean to Republicans?" Well, I mean, we should have people. I'm not I'm not putting on my little badge here and calling myself, you know, the the, the right wing police here. But conservatives <laughs> should police out the crazy, and if you see something crazy, you should say something. So so, so I mean, because if you sit there and you're silent about Alex Jones, um, you know, that's how Alex Jones gets a following. Um, you know, people people with a, a voice and an audience have an obligation, I think, uh, to to speak up. It's not to say that, you know, it's make me a bicycle clown and everyone should be able or should forcibly be required to comment on everything. But if you're seeing people on the right sharing Gateway Pundit or uh, Alex Jones or Prison Planet or all this other stuff, you should say, no, don't do that. That guy's but nuts. I, I, but I, I will tell you, I tried doing that for many, many years as a conservative talk show host. And for a while, it worked, but in 2016, what I found was it was harder and harder to push back because, of course, you know, people get that in their email box, they get that in their Twitter account, they see that on Facebook, and then anything that you present them that's outside of the alternative reality bubble, um, they rejected. Which is why your point that conservatives need to police their own is so important because had there been more responsible voices saying, "Okay, this is legitimate, this is obscene, this is crazy, you do not want to go there." Um, who knows? Again, we're playing in the alternative reality and we don't know. So, Chris, is there anything else that we should be watching over the next 24 hours? Anything you're obsessed with? 
Oh wow, my gosh! I have see. I'm a, I'm obsessed with the Manafort trial because I I just, I just want to see how far this goes. I just I, you know. <laughs> I'm gonna be I'm gonna be continuing uh, to to be curious about seeing how you know this fallout of the stuff that we're talking about here. I mean, I I think it's really important, and I I do think that you can lay down these markers, kind of like you you would you and Jim have talked about here of of policing your own. I mean, when you you know, omit action. I mean, you are essentially allowing a lot of this stuff to seep into the mainstream, and that does kind of have long-term effects. So I am going to be curious to see how many people do want to die on this hill on the right and, you know, kind of furthering this idea of, well, you know, we kind of have to try to affiliate ourselves with these people somehow because it's us versus them. I'm very curious to keep track of that. Yeah, and I, I, I do see this division already starting here. And just again, a reminder, private companies are not covered by the First Amendment. And simply because you have the right to do something does not mean that it is the responsible, decent or right thing to do. But again, we have to make these points over and over again. The Daily Standard Podcast is brought to you by Dollar Shave Club. Look, if you ever shower, brush your teeth or try to make your hair look presentable, I've got some good news for you. Dollar Shave Club has a lot of stuff to help you out. They deliver everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. Look, it, this is not just razors. I know you're thinking Dollar Shave Club or you're thinking about shaving. Um, but but again, they will, they will deliver shampoo, conditioner, body wash, toothpaste, hair gel, even a wipe that will leave your bottom feeling tingly clean. I'm a big fan of their amber and lavender calming body cleanser. Never smelled anything like it. And I, I, I will use anything that will make me feel calmer these days. Good luck finding a product that great at the store. All of Dollar Shave Club's products are made with top shelf ingredients that won't break your budget. And you will feel the difference. Plus, shipping is included with your membership. And here's a great way to try a bunch of Dollar Shave Club's products. For just five bucks, you can get their daily essential starter set. It comes with body cleanser, one wipe Charlie's, their amazing butt wipes, their world famous shave butter, and their best razor, the six blade executive. Keep the blades coming for just a few more bucks a month and add in shampoo, toothpaste, or anything else you need for the bathroom. Check it all out at dollarshaveclub.com slash weekly standard. That's dollarshaveclub.com dot com weekly standard hey uh, guys uh, thanks for joining me today i appreciate it very much and thank you for listening to the daily standard podcast i'm charlie sykes we'll be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again perfect thank you okay <laughs> <laughs>